This is The Channel, a podcast from the International Institute for Asian Studies. Welcome to The Channel. I'm your host, Benjamin Linder. Today on the podcast, I'm happy to be joined by Cicely Cook, former director of programs at the Asian Cultural Council in New York. Cicely has had a long career at the intersection of Asia and the arts. Over the course of decades, she has worked in various roles and at various institutions in support of the artistic and cultural exchange between different Asian countries and the United States. In addition to serving as director of programs for the Asian Cultural Council, She has also worked as a consultant, a curator, and a director for organizations dedicated to the visual and performing arts. Originally, the host for this episode was going to be Paramita Paul, chief editor here at IIAS. Unfortunately, there was a last-minute disruption with the Dutch train system, which blocked Paramita from coming into the office to record. I was happy to get the chance to speak with Cecily, but I do want to acknowledge and thank Paramita for developing the list of questions that guided this interview. In this episode, Cecily and I discuss her background in folklore and how that led to a career in Asian arts. In so doing, we chat about the importance of art and artists and about the role of knowledge infrastructure systems, like the Asian Cultural Council, to foster artistic work and to make an impact in the world. Without further ado, Here is my conversation with Cecily Cook. Cecily Cook, thank you so much for joining us on the channel. I'm really looking forward to talking to you today. Thank you so much, Ben. I want to start by asking a little bit about your background and how you came to the field of Asian studies. You completed a master's degree in folklore from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, focusing on refugees from the central highlands of Vietnam who had been resettled to North Carolina. So let's start with why the field of folklore? What brought you to folklore as a a discipline? Um, My first job after university was an internship at the Office of Folklife Programs at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, and I met all kinds of people who were working in what might be called applied scholarship in traditional communities worldwide, and I was inspired by a field that had room for being a community activist and for collaboration with the communities that were one subject of study. And what sparked your interest in the specific community of Vietnamese refugees in North Carolina? Um, I learned about this community of refugees from a a colleague uh, from the Smithsonian, Frank Prochan, who had worked for many years with a uh, a group from the from northern Vietnam and Laos, uh, Khmu uh, refugees who were living in Stockton, California. And he knew about this group from the Central Highlands and um, 
suggested that I uh, try to investigate a little bit and provided me with the uh, introductions that I needed. And um, when I went to graduate school, I knew that I wanted to work with with a community from Southeast Asia. Uh, in the beginning in the 1980s, uh, many Southeast Asian refugees were uh, resettled in uh, the United States, and I was interested in being able to look deeply into culture and stories um, coming out of these groups. Yeah, I'm from an ethnographic or anthropological background myself, and I just wonder, that coming from a discipline like folklore, there is a slightly different orientation in a discipline like that, and I just wonder if you could say something about how the, the particular field of folklore guided your work with contemporary refugees. The field of folklore in the United States, especially as taught and practiced at the University of North Carolina, um, offered me a chance to really collaborate with the informants that I worked with um, to analyze and share an oral history um, of their journey from the Central Highlands to three small cities in North Carolina. And uh, it brought me a way to, uh, to work with these groups in a way that I felt held me accountable to these communities. And it wasn't just writing about uh, them as much as working with them to tell a story. And what would you say was sort of the upshot of that research? What was the, the argument or what was the story that you ended up telling in your MA thesis? I had started by wanting to uh, look into traditional arts practices um, in these communities but the story that they really wanted to tell is how did they get to the United States? What were they doing there? What, why did they deserve to be there? This was a group of people who had been advocates for, for self-determination in the Central Highlands, and they had been allies of the Americans. The original American uh, military bases were... Um, in strategic hamlets, quotes, um, in the Central Highlands. And they had been allies and fought with the Americans. And they had a very particular relationship with um, the American military and with also with um, missionaries um, from the United States who had been active in that area as well. So they had a lot of connections to the United States. And I was looking at the the religious and cultural backgrounds of two of the particular leaders in this group who one who had been converted by French Catholic missionaries, one who had been converted by American evangelical Protestants, and looking at the ways that the sort of belief systems that those two Christian sects, um, how those those belief systems and sort of self-determination layered on top of the belief systems that they carried with them, how that determined how they told the story of how they ended up in North Carolina in the United States. After completing your degree, you started working as the director of the Refugee Arts Group in Boston. And after that, you were a traditional arts consultant for the New England Foundation for the Arts. How did these two organizations support the work of traditional artists generally? Uh, the Refugee Arts Group was founded by 
a leader in what would be called applied folklore, a woman named Nancy Sweezy, who had been a leader in uh, seeing a traditional arts community, in her case, um, potters in North Carolina, through a period of real change and uh, transition in the 1960s and 70s. And uh, Nancy was a specialist in material culture and had a vision for creating programs that would enable refugee artists to continue to practice their skills in their new home uh, in a way that was meaningful to them uh, while educating the public at large about these art forms and the context out of which they were born. And the Refugee Arts Group ran two major programs, a traditional arts apprenticeship program and then uh, arts programming for public schools that use traditional arts as a window onto the cultures of, of this latest wave of new immigrants to the United States to encourage understanding, respect, and tolerance. And uh, the New England Foundation for the Arts is a regional arts organization uh, that also supports traditional artists as well as um, uh, artists working in all different types of disciplines. The difference being that Refugee Arts Group was really focused in on traditional arts and these refugee groups. What would you say makes the work of refugee artists different from the work of other artists? What did the conservation of traditional arts and culture mean for these refugee artists in particular? The concerns of traditional arts practitioners are generally different than those um, working in uh, contemporary or fine arts in that they're working with a pres- within a prescribed framework uh, firsthand and foremost. Uh, and there's opportunity for creativity and innovation within tradition, but there's accountability to that larger tradition. Uh, and refugees often didn't have the opportunity to stay connected to their communities and colleagues back home because of the extreme conditions that forced them to, to seek refugee status in the first place. Um, so for the, for the refugees coming from Southeast Asia, people felt that they had responsibility to their teachers and fellow artists back in their home countries to faithfully represent art forms that are important parts of their cultural identity. Uh, In the case of traditional dance and music practitioners from Cambodia, refugee artists in the 1980s and 90s really had no way of knowing what was happening back in Cambodia during that time. And what remained after the extreme break that was brought on by the four years of the Khmer Rouge, and because of long-held suspicions and distrust of the Vietnamese who were occupying uh, Cambodia, um, many people who were in the diaspora feared that possibly there was an eradication of Cambodian culture that was taking place at home. They didn't know, and they feared that maybe they were really the only people left to be the keepers of cultural forms that are really critical to Cambodian identity. At the New England Foundation for the Arts, you directed a traditional arts apprenticeship program and also oversaw a technical support project to assist Southeast Asian and Caribbean artists. Can you expand on the apprenticeship program? How did potential candidates apply and how were they selected? And also what types of art were part of the program? 
Traditional arts apprenticeship programs are pretty common throughout the United States, um, funded by state arts organizations and regional arts organizations such as New England Foundation for the Arts. And they're open to all different types of traditional art forms. And the way people apply is a pair, a master and apprentice, apply together and they list out their goals, and they they provide background about the traditional art form, why it's important, why and why this person, the potential apprentice, is the appropriate person to be learning. It, uh, I mean, in the case of in New England, you know, there's it's a it's a very culturally rich uh, region, and we're talking about French Canadian, Caribbean, Southeast Asian, African American, Cape Verdean communities, as well as traditional art forms that come out of, you know, boat building in New England or other uh, types of work that comes out of work. Um, And arts included in the apprenticeship program. And I'm on, I've been a panelist for the New York State Council on the Arts in the past. They have an apprenticeship program. It's, it's very, very varied art forms, but what we were, uh, I was, uh, involved in back in the 90s in at the New England Foundation for the Arts Apprenticeship included you know, fado, boat building, traditional uh, martial arts from Laos, uh, Hmong courtship singing, textile arts, a real range of, of different art forms. Along those lines, you were also at one time co-director of the Cambodian Artists Project, which worked to conserve Cambodian traditional dance and music through dance residencies, community workshops for Cambodian traditional dancers and musicians in the U.S., and a 13-year program at the Royal University of Fine Arts in Phnom Penh, which supported the teaching and documentation of dance and music repertory in Cambodia. What kind of material was documented through that through that program, and why was it important to do that? Again, because of this extreme break uh, that was brought on um, by years of civil war and um, extreme hardship in Cambodia, during this period, uh, it's estimated that 90% of all artists died, um, were killed or died of disease. And For the remaining artists, there was a real urgency to have elder master artists pass on what they knew to subsequent generations to conserve essentially oral traditions of music and dance. And so the program did support the creation of video and sound recordings, as well as written texts um, as documentation. But Equally, or even more important in my view, the program provided opportunity for artists to continue to be trained and to advance their understanding and knowledge of the forms that they were practicing. So it was both material documentation, but then also the passing on of of an oral tradition. In 1994, you started working for the Asian Cultural Council, or ACC, can you just introduce this foundation to listeners who might not be familiar with it? What does the ACC do? What are its aims and purposes? Can you just tell us a little bit about it? Sure. The ACC was founded in 1963 to support cultural exchange between the countries of Asia and the United States in the visual and performing arts. 
And the basic premise was and is to give talented individuals the opportunity to travel and explore outside of their home context in order to foster international connectivity, mutual understanding, and respect across borders. So it's, it's very simple. Uh, give artists and scholars and specialists uh, in the arts the opportunity, no strings attached, to explore and to broaden their own uh, sort of visions and, and context, and then bring that back home to their home communities. If I can ask a bit of a broad question, something that we talk about a lot here at IIAS is how do we even define Asia? And I wonder, as someone who's worked with similar questions, I imagine, throughout your career, how does the ACC define Asia? That's such a good question, and it's so complicated. And honestly, the ACC defined and defines Asia geopolitically, and it is uh, Afghanistan uh, east to Japan and south to Indonesia. And that was the definition that was decided on in 1963, and we just stayed with it. Uh, Questions of ethnicity or who gets to be Asia or Asian was beyond where we really wanted to go. And we honestly had more applications and more applicants than we knew what to do with. And so we had no reason to redefine it as bigger or smaller because we essentially had our hands full. I'm curious to know about how the ACC responds or responded while you were there to changing definitions of art and the art world. For instance, earlier we talked about the selection criteria and types of art um, at the NEFA's apprenticeship program. And I imagine that now art can be expanded to include things like digital art and street art, things of that nature. So how, if at all, have the council and its aims changed since you started working for the ACC in the 90s? ACC always had a very expansive um, approach uh, that was open to pretty much any art form you can imagine. Sound art, muraling, performance art, classical Western opera, Manipuri, martial art, digital art. So that was really never a question of excluding any kind of new art. And I say that, you know, ACC, we're very proud of innovations that had been fostered over the years. And I'll give an example, which is that a young composer from Korea received a grant in the late 1960s, Namjoon Pike, and he received an ACC fellowship to come to New York and uh, explore. And he wanted to look at the relatively new form of uh, art form of video as a form of artistic expression. And the council's founding director, Porter McRae, okayed a $2,000 grant supplement that enabled Pike to purchase his first video uh, camera. And through that, a new field was actually born. What I would say is that the inclusion of all kinds of art forms has not really changed at ACC. What has shifted over the years and shifted during the time that I was there are ideas about what might constitute a successful fellowship. When I began at ACC, we might say the way we would evaluate the success 
of a fellowship would be to stay in touch with that grantee and watch and uh, stay engaged over 10 or 20 years to see what she or he went on to do with their lives and careers and take a look at the impact that in their home countries or their fields at large over time. Now, there's a huge amount of pressure to produce metrics to chart success and practically immediately. And this is, you know, this is all over the world um, where all of a sudden is everybody wants to know, you know, how successful your academic career was when you grad the day you graduate from undergraduate. But, you know, then the question of who gets to decide what metrics are appropriate you know, I mean, is it is is a fellowship successful because uh, the artist goes on to sell work for millions of dollars? They're con- commercially successful. Is it the level of prestige of you know the venues in which they're performing, or is it how connected are they to their home communities? Are they participating in a larger global community? Are they bringing new ideas to that? Are they, are they bringing their communities along for the ride in terms of, of, of new ideas and, and connectivity across borders? Um, and for different stakeholders connected to ACC, there are different answers. You also worked as a guest curator for an exhibition at the Vermont Folklife Center. And it's interesting to compare the curation of, say, an exhibition to the selection of grantees, as we were just discussing. Just like an exhibition sets the stage for new questions and new dialogues, the ACC's selection of grantees creates new grounds for discussion and debate about art, artists, and artistic themes. How would you compare these two types of of work that you've done, these curation on the one hand and selection on the other? Uh, In curating an exhibition, you're creating a narrative using objects and images which take the viewer on a visual journey, which we hope can take them someplace they haven't been or spark new understanding or ideas about what they're seeing. Selecting candidates for an ACC fellowship during my time at ACC uh, was working with potential that we saw in applicants to fully participate in this opportunity and who would bring what they were experiencing back to their colleagues and students back home. Artistic excellence was always the first criteria for selection for a fellowship, but that alone is is not enough to was not enough to uh, to have someone be selected. Um, where we were really looking for a, a spirit of generosity and of leadership and for the potential for that individual to be an activist in their field. And the word or concept of activist can stir up extremely strong feelings in the United States, um, especially in this moment of extreme political divisiveness. But what I'm talking about is uh, an individual who will act as an agent of connection to new ideas, to connecting, to shaking up the status quo. And we hoped that all who received fellowships would do all of these things and remain participants in the global community. A few times now in the interview, you've touched on political themes. Just now you mentioned activism. You've talked about migration and the legacies of war in Southeast Asia, for example. 
Um, on the ACC website, they say that one of its aims is, quote, to create a more harmonious world. And if I may, I just wonder how the council responds or responded to changing political landscapes in and beyond Asia. It is, that's a, it's very complicated. And certainly <laughs> the need for cultural understanding and tolerance and empathy are as critical now as they were in 1963. And, you know, the, the founders of the Asian Cultural Council saw cultural exchange and international engagement through the arts as as important as the realms of politics and economics. And they saw this as, as a balancing out of these other forms of, of international engagement. So now that you've left the Asian Cultural Council, I wonder what are your plans for the future? What do you have in store? I have been taking a break since I officially retired in January. And doing some other things, but I do very much hope to stay involved in the fields of cultural exchange and working with the Asian Cultural Council if needed, but certainly uh, look forward to more time to read and more time to travel that doesn't involve just 100% meetings in cities. We wish you a happy retirement from the ACC, and we want to thank you one more time for coming on the channel to speak with us about your career in the arts and for sharing your insights about that world with us. Cicely Cook, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Ben. That was Cicely Cook former Director of Programs at the Asian Cultural Council in New York. Thank you for listening to the channel. Please subscribe to receive all future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the International Institute for Asian Studies, a globally-oriented institution based at Leiden University in the Netherlands. We are dedicated to fostering an integrated, multidisciplinary understanding of Asia and beyond, and we would love for you to get involved. For more information on our conferences, webinars, publications, and fellowship program, please visit eas.asia. That's iias.asia. See you next time. <laughs>